0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study.
1: Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha Podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Today's special feature conversation is with Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, who last spoke with us for Parshat Mishpatim, episode 96, where we spoke about the concept of covenant. Interestingly, today we will speak about its inversion, the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE, which marked a watershed moment in the nation's relationship with God. Of course, we are airing this episode close to the time of Tisha B'Av, of the day that Chazal, that the rabbis instituted, uh, although maybe Rabbi Berman will, will speak about that idea, They're how not necessarily the same exact day, uh, according to Chazal and what we have in Tanakh itself, but the day where we commemorate the destruction of both of the temples, of the Batei Dash. Dr. Berman has just released a commentary on Echa through the Cambridge University Press and is sitting down with us today to speak about this latest publication, which can be purchased from online retailers. Dr. Berman is a professor of Bible study at Barilan University, who frequently lectures at Matan Beit Chemish as well. He is the author of multiple books on Tanakh, such as Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, Narrative Analogy in the Hebrew Bible, Battle Stories and Their Equivalent Non-Battle Narratives, Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism, and a work that... Uh, I've often quoted and and very much used in my teaching with my students, and we have also spoken about this, is the book Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. So first of all, Dr. Berman, it's a pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you, Yosefa, and it's uh, it's a privilege to be back with the uh, Matan podcast listening community.
1: So we're going to really jump right into this commentary on, on Echa. You know, whenever I read... Whenever I read a new commentary on one of our classical books of Tanakh, I tend to, as a writer myself, have all these questions about the creative process, so I'll limit myself, <laughs> but I'm always curious how the book came, came to be. Meaning, is this a, a course that you ended up wanting to write into a book? Mm. Is this you know, a book that you sort of always were passionate about? It's obviously a really, really difficult text, especially for an English-speaking audience, all biblical poetry is, but I think, Echa, because it's biblical poetry, and its topic is also so difficult and painful it's really one of I think it's one of the harder books in in Tanakh to understand certainly at, at a first read so I'm curious how you set out or why you set out to write this commentary
2: well that's a really interesting question Yosef, and it kind of has a, a history to it um, I myself have been baffled by by Eva for a long time it seems to have no beginning middle or end it seems to contradict itself at different points some points you have the voices saying, "Well, tzaddiku Hashem kifihu mariti. Hashem is is a, is a tzaddik, is a righteous person, and I have I have rebelled against him. And then and then a chapter later, you have you have uh, uh, claims that a kaddish baruch Hu is, is a is a, a vicious murderer, uh, and, and and everything in between, so that it it right, seems to contradict itself, right and left. Those are just some of the uh, the difficult issues that we have beyond the content, which is difficult and the languages is difficult. So 25 years ago, I, I began to, to, to try to teach a kind of came up with a, with an approach that I had developed sort of uh, over time in different courses that I've given, which we'll talk about shortly. And then how it became a book is this. I was approached by the editor of the series that this book is going to be uh, appearing in, the New Cambridge Bible Commentary. And I was approached by the editor of the series. He said to me, we need someone to write a book to write to write a commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. Would you like to do that? And um, in, in, in full chutzpah, I, I wrote back to him, "No, but how about Lamentations? How about Eicha?" And he was like, "Oh, okay. We don't have anyone to write that yet." So that's that's how I, I have the good fortune. It's something I've wanted to do to write to write up uh, uh, this perush, this commentary, and to have it appear, you know, in one of these larger uh, Bible commentary series. And uh, that's how it came about.
1: I have to say I'm I'm taking strength in that mm-hmm. answer because I also am endeavoring writing a book. I won't reveal too much information but writing a book also on a book that I wouldn't necessarily have initially thought to and also my starting point is that is that sense of of sort of being baffled by its language mm-hmm. by by its uh-huh. ideas by its theology. Mm-hmm. So a, as you pointed out the theological perspectives in Echa are I would say Ah uh, muata, right? they're somewhat theologically uneven, right? So we have all these different mm-hmm. perspectives that come mm-hmm. through in the book. And I'll even say that for most of us who really only open Migillateha, that open lamentations anti Av, there really isn't enough time to think about it. Right, it's it's just it's exactly, it, exactly, like right. even because, I would you know, say shavuot and yeah. shul when you read megillat ruth it's a simpler story so you get what's going mm-hmm. on sure, but echa sure. you read it once a year but it doesn't give you that much every time you read it
2: right exactly you know it's uh it's it's a quick read a, you know at least in shul relatively speaking and uh, you know I think even the learned of us would have difficulty saying even just what distinguishes you know paragolif from bet from gimel from dalid uh, and from hay. Uh, So yeah,
1: okay, so let's let's sort of dive deep into I would love if you would give us a little bit of a background in About the way that that has been understood in the past so that when we get to sort of understanding your approach We'll we'll be able to understand what's Mm -hmm. different about it, right? So how how has it generally been understood and I know that you'll be able to sort of uh, Help us oscillate peacefully through both academic approaches and and Hazal's approaches. So let's start with that that idea.
2: Okay, good. All right. So it really starts with the name that 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 Chazal give to Megilatecha. They nowhere in the in the Gumara refer to it as Megilat Echa. For Chazal, what we call echa, they call keynote. Mm-hmm. keynote. Uh as in the keynote that we say, you know, a little bit on Tishaba of night and and then, you know, at length on Tishaba of morning. Now that that appellation, that that assigning that that genre to this text already is a huge step towards defining how Chazal saw it because they, they're saying, well, listen, we know what keynote keynotes are when you have someone who has endured tragedy and they kind of want to kind just get it off their chest and, and you know and, and really revel in it and express their feelings. perhaps much the way Yosefa, uh, uh, that many of us if you know if we're having a particularly difficult experience, sometimes just sitting and writing about it, sometimes writing poetry about it, uh, is, is, is therapeutic in itself and is, is a necessary process of coping with the, uh, the the intense difficulty that we're experiencing. This is classically what the word keynote meant, and these are what the keynote the, the, not not the Megillah, but the keynote proper that we say on Shabbat all fit that genre. You know, we're we're, we're in a deep despair, uh, and and we, we we need to we need to you know to be in it and, and express and, and and all sorts of things come out. And I think that that's probably how most good Jews have appropriated or have understood Eicha as just another, another or an earlier form of what we would call the genre of keynote, uh, elegy in English, if, if you have to look for a word. The difficulty with that is the following. There are, there are some really pretty big differences between the type of writing that we have in Eicha uh, uh, and its style and what we find in the keynote proper. The primary thing is this, that in Eicha, it is clear that we have multiple voices. There are different characters speaking. Let me explain what I mean by that. Most of the keynote that we have are either in first person, you know, speaking about me or speaking about us. Sometimes they're in second person, like, you know, something like that, like, like Yehuda Levi. I think his keynote are, are, are about or said towards Yerushalayim but in eicha it's clear that we have multiple voices multiple speakers sometimes we have people or a voice we'll just call it that for now speaking about Jerusalem, as in the opening pasuk of the megillah you know how is it or oh or whoa she sits by herself the, the, this, the this city that was once fully populated that's speaking about jerusalem that is the voice of, sounds like, for lack of a better term, what we would call a narrator speaking about Yerushalayim. And many, many Psukim and eicha are in that third-person description of of Yerushalayim, what, for lack of a better term, we would normally, and I'm going to challenge this in a moment, we would call the narrator. But it's clear also that we have first-person accounts of what's going on in Jerusalem. So that, for example, when you have in that same peric, of Aleph, uh, (coughs) a famous pasuk, when we hear the words, Al eleb ochia, eini, eini yordim yordamaim. You know, over these I I am weeping. My 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 eye my eye it, it is it is it is flooding flooding tears. That is batsion. Okay, that is the collective uh, representation of the survivors of the Horban who are still living in Yehuda, still living in Jerusalem. And uh, it's clear that we have not only these third-person descriptions of Yerushalayim, seemingly a narrator, and first-person uh, uh, descriptions of Yerushalayim, Bat talking about herself, we even find these two characters talking to one another. So that, for example, in Perikbet, you have the narrator saying to Bat uh in Perikbet, Bet, Yud-Gimel, ma ma'adam elach ha'bat Yerushalayim? What can I possibly compare you to? you uh, uh, so what can i even compare you that i could that i could possibly give you comfort because as as, as great and mighty as, as the as the sea is so too is your is your devastation who is it that could possibly give you healing so here we see the narrator speaking to batium or later in perology he speaks to bat Siyon again at the end of the parak. In uh, seemingly an upbeat note, which is kind of strange because there are no other upbeat notes in Echa, uh, when he says Tam Avonech uh, Batzion, either your your iniquity or your punishment is now ceasing. Batzion Lo Hashem is no longer going to exile you. Uh he turns to uh, the parallel of Edom and your. Gila Chato Hashem is now is now attending to your to your sin. So we have the narrator talking to these various characters as well, and this then invites the question: Why? Toward what purpose has the author of Eicha Yirmiyahu, according to the uh, uh, the Masora? Uh, why is 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 Yirmiyahu employing two different voices? Now we have elsewhere in Tanakh different voices. For example, the the the, the, the clearest and Most classic example is in Eov, where you have Eov, who's enunciating one one type of theology, and his quote-unquote friends, the Re'im, who are arguing from a different side. But in Eov, it's clear what Eov stands for, and it's clear what the Re'im, the the so-called comforters, what they are standing for. The problem in Echa is that it's hard to get a clear read of any of the characters. Is there anything consistent in them? But this 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 is the main this is the main difference. This is why we need to look beyond the genre of just elegy. Eicha, excuse me, keynote, and to understand what are these voices? Why are these voices being employed? Towards what end? What is the purpose of Echa? What is it about?
1: Okay, so you're saying that there's something about it's very unique style of, of writing that must speak mm-hmm. also to the meaning of what the book is coming to offer mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. And it, it has to be more than sort of just some sort of rhetorical device. But on another hand, we know that it's not too well, character, so devices. it has to be some sort of rhetorical device because this yeah. city mm-hmm. itself or the collective can't actually speak. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe this mm-hmm. is actually representing the perspective of the people who were left. Meaning we, we're still, this whole category is open, whether it's a device or it's actually representing a reflection of what people were believing at that time. Is, is that that's mm-hmm. sort of part of the confusion?
2: Well, what you know, just want, toward what purpose has, has the author done this? To have speaking back and forth, responding to one another. What is the purpose of that? That that's. That's the question that I come to. And up, also, of course,
1: the correlation between the different chapters, right? That's also a question sure. of whether right. there's forward right. movement. Right. That's a question, of course, that comes up also, let's say, when you're learning or reading Shira Shirim, right? Also this question yes. of, is it just some sort of an- anthology or is there a movement that we can trace mm-hmm. between the different mm-hmm. the different chapters? Mm-hmm. So that's also, I think, a question right. that comes right. up here as well. Right. Right. Okay, so what, what has generally been done? We've spoken about Chazal, who look at it as keynotes, which may or may not help us necessarily in understanding the, the import. So how, how has it often been understood, or until now, until this revelatory commentary, uh, how has it largely been understood?
2: Okay, so in, tr- in, in, in traditional uh, uh, exegesis, note, it's always been understood, tina in one form or another, you know, expressing woe, expressing questions without really much of attention. I don't think you can find really any classical uh, uh, exegete or even modern yet orthodox exegete who really attends to this question, why do we have these different voices? All, all commentators are sort of in the classical mode of reading this just as expression of pain, expression of hurt, expression of vexation. And that's that's pretty much uh, the approach within within the Masora. Outside of the Masora, um, but not necessarily in ways that are theoretic in any way, you know, a heresy or apostasy, many uh, um, um, non-Jewish uh, or even Jewish commentators who are writing in an academic mode uh, like to say well what we have here is that after the horbon after the destruction of the temple there were many many different people around with many different opinions and and they're all kind of just thrown together here this is kind of like a, a an anthology of of the different of a, a, a kind of a cacophony of, of of questions that people had if you will you know, Sefa, we can we can think the same way about you know the immediate period after the shoah you know, some people obviously left left belief altogether. But even those who who remained, uh, you know, within the within uh, 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 tradition and 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 continue to 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 carry on with Torah mitzvot and to maintain a, a relationship with the ribbon and shalolam, you find if you speak to these people, you find many, many, many different approaches. And what are they what do they think? What were they thinking? What are they thinking? Um, in the book, I cite a really fascinating uh, uh, work that I that I borrowed heavily from by uh, a fellow named uh, Reeve Robert Renner. Who, in the 70s, um, he interviewed 700 Holocaust survivors about their beliefs before, excuse me, during, and after the Shoah. And these aren't, these aren't things that we talk about very much. You know, I think that that uh, uh, in our day and age. Uh, The Shoah doesn't get talked about very much because it's too big. We don't know what to do with it. And we were able to pretty quickly move on to other happier things like Medina Israel. And, you know, I think there's much more theologically written about the significance of the founding of the state of Israel than there has been about the meaning of the Shoah because we really don't know. And it's much, much, much happier to think about other things than to think about the Shoah. But for those after the Shoah, this went on for decades and decades. And so they they had to produce materials to deal with it. So the, uh, the primary approach that you find in, in modern writers uh, is that uh, there's no one opinion, it's just a cacophony of voices, and uh, there's actually they claim one after another, there's no order to anything in Echa. It's part of the balagan, we might call it. You know nothing is orderly and even and therefore the voices and the opinions are thrown together in a random way, which I find kind of hard to believe because we all know anybody who sat on, and has read Tisha, has read Alan, realizes, that, that so many of the prakim here are organized by the aleph bet, you know, they're an acrostic. That is, that the first pasuk begins with an aleph, the second pasuk begins with a bet, the third with a gimel, etc., etc. Three of the chapters are that way. Uh, they're also fully chiastic. That means that you have that means that you have a word in pasuk aleph, and you have the same word in the last pasuk of the parak, and then you have a word in the second pasuk of the parak and then you have the same word in the second-to-last pasuk of the parak. So that this is incredibly well organized, and so to say that this is all just, you know, a baladan, a cacophony, a uh, multitude of voices, they don't really connect with one another, and they're thrown together randomly, seems to me to not give the work the credit that it deserves.
1: I just want to pick up on one piece that you mentioned there about the cacophony of voices some might be listening and saying what cacophony of voices the Beit Mikdash was destroyed because of the sins of Israel and what is there to talk about and it's interesting because we actually really see this cacophony we see it in the book of Yirmiyahu we see it in a bunch of other exactly, places yes, how there were yes, multiple yes. ways to look at this event and yes, well, well that in a
2: second. Yeah. okay
1: so uh, I'll, yeah, okay well I'll bring one example and we'll see where we dove. Tell on this that, you know, while for us we sort of accept the narrative of the Book of Melachim, I would say largely as sort of the big winner, and of Yirmiyahu himself, that wasn't necessarily a persuasive argument for a lot of the people living at that time. And one of the one of the passages I often like to bring is in in Yirmiyahu Memdalet in chapter forty four, when Yirmiyahu, against his will, has found himself in Egypt after the Beit Midrash destroyed, and also the last hopes of Gedaliah and others has have also mm-hmm. been shot in um uh, literally and figuratively in, in Yerushalayim. So they find himself in Egypt and he's sort of, you know, yelling at everyone there that you're still here doing Avodah Zarah. They've really, really developed, you know, methods of foreign worship and temples there. And they say, what are you talking about? Right. And they again, I'm just I'm sort of uh making up the Psukim, but you can look in the in the middle section, sort of from from the seventh Pasuk to, to the tenth, and they say you know what? As long as our ancestors in Jerusalem were worshiping foreign worship, everything went well. And then when they stopped, that's when everything mm-hmm. went down the drain. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. most of the commentators think they're talking about the period of, of Yoshiawa, the period of the really big religious reform, that when we read Sefer Malachim, it's sort of looked at as this great uh, this great achievement, and then all of a sudden you realize that the people at that time didn't see things that way, and they also had not yet connected between the destruction of the Beit Mikdash and their behavior. Something that to us, when we sort of, again, very Sefer-Malachi-minded and others and other theologies that I'm sure you'll speak about, it sort of seems very basic, and and then you realize that, that doesn't, that's not how people understood things then, and then you sort of wonder, mm-hmm. okay, well, there's a perspective that Tanakh wanted to put forward and that ultimately apparently won out but but you sort of wonder you know were their perspectives totally wrong or or were there multiple you know sort of a multi vocal mm-hmm. period of time but over time we sort of accepted a particular theology we went with a particular perspective and it's remained with us very strongly until this day so that's like a little bit of a comment but it's also a question because i'm sure you have a lot more to add to this
2: well, everything you've just said, Yosefa, I, I sign on entirely, and it actually is, is the perfect segue to, uh, uh, for me to explain what I think is happening in Eicha. Great. Okay? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me take a step out of the Tanakh for a second and ask a kind of a, a, a tantalizing question. Um, what does Megillah Eicha have to do with uh, anti-vaxxers, uh, those that deny climate change, Uh, uh, those that claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. The answer is a phenomenon that social uh, psychologists call belief persistence. Belief persistence is when a group of people hold fast to a set of beliefs about reality that is utterly impervious to any, any, any proof to the contrary. That is, you know... Uh, if you tell a Holocaust denier, well, here we have this documentary, and here they're they're digging up Sobibor. It doesn't matter how much evidence you bring. We know it's not going to matter because it's not really about evidence. It's not really about proof. Uh, and 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 so too with the other uh, uh, modern examples that, that that I raised. Because what's happening is that is that a group of people has, has something about this set of beliefs that really sits at the core of their collective identity. And for them to, to even question, those beliefs would rock the boat for them in an incredibly difficult way. I raise that, 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 that notion of belief persistence, of people who are clinging on to a, set, a way of interpreting the world that is totally off and yet totally impervious to any proof to the contrary. Because this is exactly what happened to Yerushalayim and to the residents of Yerushalayim in the period of Yirmiyaw. That's exactly what you were saying. What we see is that in, in Sefer Yirmiyaw is that the people are infected with what we call, using the academic term, Zion theology. That means HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves us. And he loves his Beis HaMikdash. And he loves the Eretzion. And he loves the Davidic King. He loves us. He just totally loves us. And, and, and therefore nothing can happen. And in fact, there's even one place in, in, in Yir Miao, in Chet, where they say, you can say everything you want. We're never going to believe you. We're mm-hmm. never going to believe you. What does it mean? We're never going to believe you"? That means we're, the proofs are nothing you can say. There's no proofs because we are totally committed to this. The remarkable thing about, about Sefer Yir Miao, and you've already pointed to this, Yosef. And what you said before is what I, what I like to call the chapter that was never written the chapter that never happened. The chapter that we would totally expect that after the Korban, after the destruction of the temple, the people would come to Yir-Meow and say, oh, yir you were right and we were wrong. You said this was going to happen. And it all happened exactly the way that you predicted. That never happens. That never happens. The people come to him and they ask for advice. He says, "You know, let me ask the Putinshbarak what to do," and then he tells them, "You should, you should all stay here." And then they basically spit in his face. And and you know, and you also pointed out, you know, later on in the other places, and this is just shocking. Like, didn't they see that Yermiyahu had been totally right? So this is this is why it's so similar to those other, other things that I mentioned. Don't people see all the all the all the all the, all the, the scientific proof, of, proof about COVID vaccinations? And don't people see that there's you know, no proof that the election was stolen? And, and, on, and on and on and on. It's because they are totally committed to this ideology because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel loved by a kaddish baruch hu, and it makes them. It takes the onus of responsibility off of them. And so, even after the Khorban, they do not understand what happened at all. In their opinion, God had a bad day. You can see this clearly the first time in Megillat Echa that Batsion speaks, right? What I said before about the voice that speaks in first person about herself or about Yerushalayim. We have this in, in, in uh, Perak Aleph, when she cries out and says, Shalom, where are you you should notice me see me deal oh yes. The, the the enemy has triumphed i mean that clearly shows that she doesn't understand that Akadish baruch brought the horban she thinks akadosh baruch was out to lunch and and all she needs to do is call on him and she is his beloved and he will come and save her so they are lost in la la land that is your That we encounter in Megillat Echa. And what Megillat Echa is, in my humble opinion, is the following. As I said, we have two dominant voices. You have a narrator, and then you have Batzion. The narrator is not like a narrator that we have throughout Tanakh, kind of a dispassionate guy who's just describing things. The narrator is Yermiao himself. And he is. Echa the, the, is a series of, of interchanges and dialogues between Yirmi Yao and Batsion, where Yirmi Yao is taking the role, I would say, of a therapist, of a pastoral mentor. He sees as his role to get Batsion to wake up and smell the coffee, to realize that she's still in a delusion, to really understand all the messages that he had tried to get across to her in Sefer Yirmi Yao. And that's going to be incredibly painful and difficult for her because she's going to have to let go of this notion that God loves me. He loves me. And I'm sure he wants to hear my tepilot. And I'm sure he's going to save me because he's always loved me. And he always loves Yerushalayim. And once she has to realize that, you know what? Tarsh Baruch is furious with you and hates you and has deliberately brought incredible suffering upon you. That is going to be shattering for her. And so he needs like a good therapist. You know, a therapist takes people out of their delusions, you know, hopefully softly, but by challenging a little bit, but then also by helping the person put the pieces back together. Echa is a series of dialogues like that. Why are there five prokem? And this goes back to something you said before, Yosefa, and that's because what we see in Sefer yermiao is that Yerushalayim is not one voice. There are many voices. In fact, in Sefer Your one scholar has noted this, there are literally 136 ascribed voices. That means times that the, 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 the Navi in Yerim Yahu says, the people say, or the priests say, or, or, or the women say, or something like that. 136 lines. You don't find that in, the only, in, in Yechezkel a little bit, and most of all you hear is the Navi. You don't hear what the people are thinking. And so in, 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 in Megillat Eicha, each parak is taking a different sub-community. Within your all of them infected with this delusion about how much a Kurdish Brahu loves them and is working with them to bring them to a new place. Okay, wait. That's so my I, take.
1: Okay. I I wanna dig a little bit deeper into this this confidence mm-hmm. because as you speak about it, it contrasts so greatly with the utter lack of confidence that Jews will later feel once they've been downtrodden enough, and Christianity has, you know, also squelched mm-hmm. that confidence. I'm thinking in my mind to Rashi's introduction to the Book of Shir Shirim, which he basically reinterprets as God's love letter to the mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. after they feel that they are, you know, sort of uh, an aguna. They've been left; they've been left by their by their spouse. And so, first of all, mm-hmm. there's something very jarring about the presentation of Jews at any point in history before this very modern moment in time when we have our own country as being utterly confident so much so that they can't even see reality clearly. That's just sort of a piece that was coming up for me emotionally. But my question is also why? I'm curious, what's the root? And again, this is, we could talk so-called Zion theology, but what lies at the root of it? Meaning, was it simply the different victories that Yerushalayim had over the years? Uh, I know that Yerushalayim also tries to also combat this a little bit in a number of chapters uh, in there as well. Uh, There was a real high that they experienced after Yerushalayim was saved from the the Assyrians. But is that, what, what lies at the root of it? Is it sort of this idea of, in the ancient world, that there was something, Thing called safety, you know what we call in the game of tag, whether it was I'm thinking about the altar, right? Grabbing onto the 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 corners of the altar. What what led to this idea that that was so powerful that they couldn't sort of see reality for what it was? Again, because it also is just contrasting so much, because by the time we're sort of deep into the period post-destruction, we see prophets of that time period. Again, there's a lot of debate about who spoke when, but Uh, some of the books included in are that the people were really lacking confidence. They thought God had totally left them. So I'm sort of trying to figure out how we can understand this shift uh, in the people, obviously based on the books we have, of sort of oscillating between overconfidence and then lack of confidence so much so that they don't even want to come back anymore.
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think that you know, you can see it in, in modern times as well. Oh, this is the Gaula. We're living in the Gaula. The Kaddish loves us. I'm not sure that the Kaddish Baruch Hu is so happy with us. It's clear that we've had a great Chesed that He's returned us to Eretz israel But I think that that you know, you see it in in, in the discourse in our own community, Yosef, that it's so, it's just so comforting to think how much the Kaddish Baruch Hu loves us, and that this is a period unlike any other. And I think it sometimes blinds us to 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 things that we need to be changing and things that we need to be doing and the lackings that we have it's so comforting to think how much the kudosh loves me because then i don't have to change and i don't have to do anything and i think that that's really that's that's that's, that's what's behind it also i think that i think that uh um it, you know it's much easier for people to believe in good news than bad news. You know, if I tell you, you know, Josefa, you really have to get your money out of the stock market right now. So it's going to crash tomorrow. And someone else says to you, No, yeah, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be much easier for you to believe that what you're doing right now is okay than to mm-hmm. hear a doomsday prediction. And so I, I, I think that that's, 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 that's what was going on here. But you know, it's, it's, just, it's just really clear at the end of your meow that there's no wake up moment, that this still continues.
1: I'm gonna ask something that I think is heretical, but we are assuming that Yirmiyahu's perspective is the solely right perspective, because he's the prophet of God. Meaning, is there any way to think that some of these other perspectives had legitimacy as well? It's a really postmodern question.
2: No, and, and you, know what? you know what? Multiple narratives, yeah. You'll be surprised by my answer, uh, Yosefa. I think in Echa, no. I think that the, the there's, there's only one answer, that's Yirmiyahu. But I think when you look in the rest of Tanakh, you can see, that there's 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 multiple answers to this. I'll just give one 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 example uh, that really highlights it. Um, we have in the Tanakh three places mm-hmm. where you have people in Yerusha line after the korban praying to a Baruch Hu for for redemption. Okay, you have that in the last parak of Echa, which is a long tefillah. parakay is really a tefillah, and you have this in two Mitzmorim and in Ayin Dalet and Mizmor Ayin Tet, seventy four and seventy nine. In many ways, many, many of the many of the terms that are used in all three are the same, but there is a new yawning gap between the theology of Tehillim and the theology of Eicha that breaks down exactly along this line. When you look into Tehillim, the, 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 what you see is that the the the, 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 the that wrote those Mizmorim speak about how much of Chodesh Baruch loves us. And we are your avadecha, your servants, and your chassidecha, your your righteous ones, your torecha. We are your your turtle doves. That's a term that's used over there. And and look at all the terrible things that the goyim have done to us, and even more, look at the terrible things the goyim have done to you. Okay? those people in Tehillim are enunciating the theology that we find by Yirmiyahu's adversaries in Sefer Yirmiyahu. When you look in eicha perakeh there is no mention at all of any of these love terms from israel not, not, Torecha, not Yaakov, none of that in eicha perakeh there's nothing about look at what the goyim have done to us that takes the attention away from what eicha wants to put at the center we are the ones that are responsible and so in that tefillah and eicha perakeh there's no mention practically in direct fashion of what the goyim did it's, yes, we are suffering we have this but not look what they have done and certainly nothing in Eicha parakei Calling for the same redemption seemingly that they are in, in, in Tehillim Ayin Dalad and Ayin Tet. You don't have in, in Eicha parakei anything about Yvonur look what they've done to your Mikdash look what they've done to your mishkan. nothing nothing like that Because that's not the point those those feelings are exactly the problem it's, it's when when those when those Ms. lead and say look what they've done to us your beloved ones Look what they've done to you and your beautiful mikdash That's exactly taking the attention away. It's still it's still holding on to the, the 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 delusion That a kaddish baruch who loves us after the korban. And Yerim is not going to hear any of it. He wants us all to wake up and smell the coffee We are alone. We are solely responsible for this and if we are going to turn to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, it has to be through the most important term you have in Eifa, Perikei, oi lanu, oi Na lanu parakel. Only when we do a proper Hezbollah Nefesh, only when we do a proper Vidui, only then can we turn to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But don't tell a Kaddish about how beautiful his base of is and how much he loves it. And don't tell him how much he loves us. That's just not where we're at. It's not where we're at today.
1: I like this quote from your introduction. You write, For the pastoral mentor, only by writing the relationship with the Almighty above will Israel be able to successfully negotiate its conduct with the nations of the earth below. Right? It's it's a need to take responsibility. It seems very much, again, in the way that we're presenting the people at this time, that they weren't really looking at themselves reflectively. I have to say there's something also really disappointing about it because... We're, talking, we're speaking about a time in history where they had prophets. And we don't even have those prophets now. And when they had prophets who, you know, most of them, there obviously were false prophets, who were sort of pumping them with the things they wanted to hear. But mm-hmm. this is after hundreds of years of prophecy, if, I mean, more honestly, but certainly hundreds of years of classical prophecy. And they still were, were sort of utterly confused about how God wanted them to look at their behavior. It's, it's something that's a little bit frustrating if I could say that about this delusion, because then I think, well, in the world we live in today, we don't even have these kinds of of direct channels to God, and and will certainly still confuse us. Well,
2: you know, I'm not sure yourself that the people understood that Yirmiyahu was 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 you know the only true one around. No, they, I mean, thought, he of, a, they thought he was a they thought he was a
1: quack. They didn't think he was right.
2: None of these later prophets do any do any miracles, so it was hard for them to establish their bona fides. You know.
1: Correct. I mean, again, we we look at it retroactively and and think that it's very authoritative, but it is very clear mm-hmm. when you read between the lines that yeah. that these that these prophets, right. it was probably more needed for the generations. Right, Chazal's, mm-hmm. the Chazal's idea of okay. what's written was yeah. Hutzrech Le Dorot is not only because yeah. it's a good important for us to hear, but it probably is more authoritative for us to yeah. hear than it was for them to hear then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's something about that. I mean, I whenever I teach about prophecy, I sort of do that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, pour the cold water on people to understand what prophecy mm-hmm. really was like. It, it was much less mm-hmm. clear, I think, than we often tend to think. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was curious. You have a great little, uh, so, I don't know, really, uh, sort of window in your introduction a passage where you explain to the reader, obviously the assumption that the reader is not necessarily going to be Jewish or observant, uh, about how the Midrashic collection of of Eicha Rabba really tries to bridge this book with with later periods in Jewish history that don't share the same tragedy. Meaning, Chazal are looking at Eicha and saying, "How can we connect this book to what's going on now?" Uh, and and mm. and ironically, a lot of times what they do is that they they invert really negative verses yes. and read them mm-hmm. positively, right? So that Echa mm-hmm. becomes sort mm-hmm. of a book that can promise something us about about the future. Right. And so right. I'm curious, not at all to minimize the work of Chazal, and that's a, a different conversation about how Echa Rapa really functions, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, what what sort of passages or a passage in, in Echa that you think stands on its own meaning without inverting it, that stands on its own as being meaningful for our religious lives today. Um, Just curious what what comes up for you.
2: Okay, two things. One for our individual avodat Hashem, our own individual spiritual lives, and one for our collective spiritual lives, okay? In Eicha Perek Bet, Yirmiyao demonstrates very convincingly all of this was from God, and you have to recognize that. and. Yermiao recognizes that if Bat sion is going to, to uh, adopt that, she is likely to be very angry at God, very angry at God. And that is how Perak Bet ends. The, 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 the dialogues that we have here are not actual dialogues that happen. They are staged dialogues. Mm-hmm. They are models for what the author Yermiau where he wants to see Bat get to in each of the Prakim. And Perik Bet ends with her furious at god and accusing him of murder. And I think that the takeaway from this is that there are sometimes uh, uh, events in our lives we don't understand what a kurish baruch is doing to us and we are really angry at him and that's okay. It's important to be able to express anger to a kurish baruch. Just like it is in any of our dear and close relationships. If you're if you're angry at someone, it is far worse to just close them out if you can yell at them, it means that you still are invested in them. It means that you still hold them accountable. It means you're still actually looking for a way back. It's when you just slam the door and walk out that things are bad. And so and so Yemiyao almost creates, I would say, a space for, for the people of Yerushalayim, who are just now, through his work, coming to really understand their role and what a Baruch Hu did as a result, to then not necessarily say, oh, chatanu, pashanu, Avinu no, that's not gonna. That, that doesn't happen so quickly. The first thing is, wow, no way! I, I am furious about what's going on, and that's okay. You can be furious at God. There's a place for that as well. Okay, that's that's uh, I think is one is one takeaway. And then the, the the second takeaway, I think this is for our collective lives, is you know if you were to ask uh, Yirmiyahu in Eicha, so what? Why why was the why was the temple destroyed? Why was there a churban on Hamikdash? Eicha doesn't talk about like Chazal say, you know, three big aveirot that there was, you know, giduy arayot, shpichuk damim, avodah zarah, you know, uh, uh, incest, adultery, uh, murder, and idol worship. Very, very few signs of any of that in Eicha. Uh, here and there, one or two v'sukim, maybe. But the primary reason, if you, if you read Eicha the way that i that i that i that I'm, that I'm, that I'm uh, proposing, is the 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 danger the danger of falling into an ideology that has no controls on it no 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 capacity for for self-critique and i can't think yourself of anything more important in our very highly charged and polarized
0: age whether
2: you're living in israel or whether you're living in america we all see around us various camps in which group speak is clothed and cloaked with piety It's amazing. You have very good people. I'm talking about people in our world, Yosefa, who are very cognizant of their own personal failings. They can do a cheshbon nefesh that's probably pretty on the mark about their own individual selves. But ask people, what about your hashkafa? What about your community's theology and political theology? Oh, that's perfect. That must be perfect. There's nothing wrong with my community. It's the other ideologies that have all the problems. That is what led to the Khorban by Rishon, according, according to your meow. It was when Yerushalayim got stuck in a political theology that had no control and no capacity for, self, for self-reflection and self-critique. All it could see was its own righteousness. Group speak clothed and cloaked in piety. And that, I think, is the big takeaway for Echa for our time.
1: Oh goodness, I have a lot of thoughts in response. I'm going to limit them though, because we're going to be winding down. The first is is your first uh-huh. point about emotionality in Tanakh, which mm-hmm. I've just given its own name. But that's a really, really important like that. piece that mm-hmm. Tanakh really in so many of its books. And actually, Rivie Frankel and I, who's currently taking over hosting the episodes, we we gave a, a sort of a workshop to Tanakh teachers about this. We each we brought in sets of different texts throughout Tanakh. Where a different emotion is being expressed, and we had them sort of identify what it is and and wow. sort of reflect ha- about how the characters in the narrative respond. If this was a student of yours, how would you respond and sort of like to mm-hmm. do a whole role playing of so mm-hmm. there there's so much to say about that, but I love that piece about even just i would say validating uh yes, grief validating. or
2: or much vali- of is about validating
1: yes. exactly it's mm-hmm. sort of like this validation of grief and obviously that plays into the your your presentation of the narrator as the sort of pastoral mentor or as you said a therapist mm-hmm. and the the other piece about sort of community is I, I just will say that i think that that kind of group speak is i'm gonna i'm gonna steer clear of any labels that is, uh-huh. it is characteristic of certain groups. Um, I feel like I often find myself in groups that are actually highly self-critical, but I, I, I can identify in your description that there's something unusual about those groups, meaning I I feel yes. like I often found myself in a community of people, I'm gonna just say it broadly even, like in a Datilumi world, where you have, um, where people are often very, very self critical of the community itself. And that kind of self criticism can be weakening. But as you're pointing out, there's also a great, great danger in the in the other version of sort of being able to not being able to look at ourselves mm-hmm. critically and, and see our community as one that sort of has figured out has figured all the answers. I guess it feels so far for me because I mostly feel like I occupy a space uh-huh. of doubt and uh-huh. I'm not really sure that, you know, anyone's really uh-huh. hit anything on the mark, but that's I think a really brilliant piece. And I also think that while you're very kind to think that many people individually can be self-critical, I think that <laughs> I, I think that the echo chambering and the fact that we just can go through so much of our lives now because of the personalized nature of what we see and who we hear and who we meet and what shall we go to and that we often can keep sort of meeting many, many versions of ourselves. I'm perfectly guilty of mm-hmm. this uh, in the life mm-hmm. that I've chosen. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's a kind reading to say that people could be self-critical, but I'm not oh, even sure okay. that it's true at an individual okay. level. Okay. Um, but that's, that's a really important piece as, as we sort of wind down. Uh, I guess I want to end with like the big question that no matter what take you have on the book of Echa, we struggle with every year uh, to the point where there are those opinions that say of saying the, the added tefillah in shmonasrey that we say on uh, that we say anti shavav is almost yeah. inappropriate to say anymore today that it may be mm-hmm. something that shouldn't be said anymore uh where we're describing the destruction and sort of the, the desolate nature of Yerushalayim. it's simply not true uh, and so i guess i'm curious you know what is you know why are we still insistent on marking Chorban Yerushalayim, and obviously through the prism of Echa in an age where, you know, everywhere you turn, you can only run into more construction in the city of Jerusalem.
2: Right, right. So, you know, I think that marking the Khorban of the Basemaker is extremely important precisely because of all the good that we have and precisely because of the seemingly revolutionary and, and, and redemptive age that we live in. Because since we celebrate the half, the half of the cup that's full that has been so empty for so long, it's sometimes difficult to recall the half of the half of the cup that's still empty. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's really important, you know. I, I think ideally every day on our calendar should be Yom HaTzema'ot and every day should be Tisha B'av. Every day, every day has to have both. You have to have both. You have to realize the the, the extraordinary nature of the times that we live in, and you can't get carried away by them. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, we, we have to remember as so long as there's no Beit Mikdash, this is, this is a country Brahu's clearest sign that we have a lot of work to do. And, and to get back to understanding, you know, what it is and, 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 and where we've gone wrong. And I would say, you know, just to, 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 to repeat again what I said before, I think one of the most dangerous things in our time is the, the, the group speak that is clothed and cloaked in piety. And that is what Eicha says, brought about the Horban of, of, uh, of Yerushalayim the first time around. And it means that we have to examine carefully our political theologies, I'd say on all sides. Doesn't mean to give up, doesn't mean they're wrong, but there probably is some truth to some of the things the other side is saying. Can we open ourselves to, the, to those possibilities? I think that's, that, that's the big message. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's that, that half cup that, uh, that, is, that is not full that we need to really attend to, not just on Tisha B'Av, every day needs to have a little bit of Tisha B'Av in it.
1: Thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really appreciate it.
2: And Emir Tshem Yosefa next year. We don't have to talk about this anymore, and we'll, we'll, we'll have it all down right. And uh, Amen. Thank you.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One On One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il.
2: Thanks for listening, everyone.